Welcome to the Peace Wanted podcast. Hi, I'm meeting with Fatuma Ibrahim today, who is just an amazing woman. Uh, and she's worked across so many different issues to do with protection, across UNICEF. And I know that you've been, Fatima, you've been doing all these big workshops on unarmed civilian protection over the last few years. So I know that you've, you've sort of travelled and met with so many people. So I'm so pleased you can join in our conversation. So nice to see you. It is lovely to see you. And thank you so much for having making a little bit of time to chat. It's really lovely. And I don't know if you remember, but years ago, I did a little video of you where I said, why is protection important? And two things on that that have always struck me is one about all of the different definitions of protection. And we have to think about all of those. But the one which I remembered most is about the need to see women as individuals, to not just victims or objects of protection. I just thought I'd start by saying like, Tell us about how you think about protecting and protecting civilians like at the moment. I know your work at the moment is very immediate on that. So much, Rachel. I'm actually so surprised. I couldn't remember that. <laughs> but thank you so much for reminding me about that. Yeah, I've done quite a bit of work in the area of protection, particularly child protection in different contexts. But I always feel that somehow international community take away from communities their power to protect themselves yeah that thing has stuck with me and it has stayed with me and i always try to look at it from the point of view of the community the very fact that they are still there despite all the problems they've gone through means that there is a certain measure of resilience, a certain measure of protection mechanisms that they are using yeah. uh, to protect themselves. So while we have all these international standards and uh, international practices, I think it should actually be leading or helping us to strengthen the existing mechanisms. I have been, I mean, at the beginning, of course, I was very naive. I, I, I just <laughs> went with the international standards, international practices until, you know, I kind of grew up and started looking, you know, seeing the examples again and again that, yeah, they, they have the capacity, but we need to support that capacity. Sometimes to identify, it takes me back to my work actually in the refugee camp. It was South Sudan refugees in Kenya, in Kakuma okay. refugee yeah. camp. Yeah. So we used to go, I mean, we would talk with the, with the parents and they would tell us, oh, I have nothing. I, I have nothing. There's no way I can care for my children. There's no way I can protect us food. I have to rely for this agency to bring us firewood. I have I have no power. The children don't even listen to me. I mean, there's nothing I'm bringing. So, and we were working with unaccompanied and separated children. Wow. And then we clearly saw that those children that did not have any adult caregiver around them were actually more vulnerable to exploitation, to abuse, violence, and so on. But where the parents yeah. are, so we started working with the parents and saying, as long as you are there, that's yeah. good enough, present. So tell us how can we support you to be able to support the children. So we realized you needed to 
support the parents to understand that they still have some power, yeah. some cloud, yeah. and the fact that they are there, they are alive, is already a protective factor. Absolutely, because then somebody knows where the children are. Somebody, yes. yeah, make sure Ca they have count. food. Yes, yeah. Even if the baby brings the food, they don't cook it. So yeah. <laughs> somebody uh, has to cook that food. Yeah, one of the risks of children that I'm aware of being becoming child soldiers. But I remember then in one of the Nonviolent Peace Force projects where it was the parents who went to ask for the children back yes. from when they had been taken. And it's like, but it needs that parent agency, doesn't it? Exactly. And they have it as long as they are there. So even here now in in Syria, we've been, when I came, I, I found they were already responding to the earthquake. And of course, a lot of protection issues, mostly it was around mental health and psychosocial support. But then again, the focus, we used to focus so much on the children, but we said, let's focus on the, mm. on the parents. Yeah. So they have a program called Parenting Support. So there they talk with the parents to understand themselves, where they are, how they are feeling. And also then to understand the situation of the children. So by giving, making yeah. the parent confidence and the support they need, then they are able to care and protect their children. So the same thing goes for communities. Yeah. So when communities are in a conflict situation, I've always worked in post-conflict, but there are times I've also worked in active conflict. Yeah. It's like people feel that, they are powerless. So the first thing really is to remind them that they still have that agency, the fact that they are there. Not all of them, but for yeah. some of them, then they realize, oh yeah, we have, we are here. Yeah. We can still be able to, to do something. So I remember when I was in, in South Sudan a few years back, I think it was 2014 actually, when the war broke up yeah. again. And you know, in South Sudan, there is the bigger war, but then there were always the tribal was so i would talk to the communities and then i asked them but how do you protect yourself yeah. how do you know that the community a is coming to attack you you know usually for cattle rustling on and so on and then they would tell me there are times we really avoid conflict so how do you do it said by moving away we find ourselves oh. we move away yeah. so i asked but how do you do it then they told us they have a system of runners. They call them runners. But these are people, they are young people who are situated along the route between one community and the other community where they don't have good relations. Yeah. So once they see things are coming up in the other, they send word. It's like scouts. Yes. They send word to the next person yeah. who runs. They actually run because there's no other. Yeah. To the next person and says, on this day, there's going to be this. So then again, again, and it could be a distance of 70 kilometers they are able to get. So these people, what they do, because they had a, a river in between them, they just cross with all their cows, yeah. the children, the women, to the other side. So in that way, then these people, even if they come, they don't find them. <laughs> and they can't stay there long, they go back. So I, re I realized there's a system, but how much do we know of this system? Well, we don't know very much, do we? Because we're so focused on protection being something which is done. 
And it's like, and so, and I often think about the the idea that protection for some people means UN peacekeepers and, and the military, but they're in so few places around the world where there's actually violence that they cannot possibly be really protecting that many people. So if we think about the protection need, actually it's communities that overwhelmingly provide a response to that protection need. Very much so. In many different ways, I think I have seen good examples of this, particularly in South Sudan, where I spent a lot of time because I was in South Sudan during the Liberation War. And so we could see what people were using to protect themselves. And then also now, again, after independence, and then, of course, when the war continued, and then to see the difference between what peacekeepers are able to do and not able to do because as you said there are few of them but also even when there are many in the country for instance in south sudan it's a very big country yeah and the conflicts were erupting everywhere the peacekeepers could only be in certain areas so in many cases the communities still had to rely on their own ways of of protecting themselves. It also depends on that modality that peacekeepers are Mm. going to use. Is it chapter six? Is it chapter seven? If you're thinking about all of people being involved, it seems like there's a bit of a gap between us being able to include and hear them and actually create protection strategies that work. So where where are their voices in, in the way we think about protection or... Does it only happen at community level or is there some way in which sort of like civilians could influence a a strategy or support other people? That's a big question. I think there are ways where it can be done, but a lot of it depends again on the different contexts. There are contexts where, I mean, the communities are part of the civilians, of course, but then in the civilian system, you would have the local government and, and, and you have all this. So it depends on collaboration mm. or how the ties, let yeah. me just use the ties between the communities and the other um, civilian, particularly the most structured civil parts of the yeah. uh, civilian. So it depends on that because I think in places where this is good, um, I would imagine more so. I think for me then it it will go to maybe Mindanao where you could see the civilian structures working with the people in the movement because they are also in the the community actually. That's right. Well, it emerged from the community, didn't it? Yeah, they emerged from the community. So the ties are still very strong. In that case, then... There's a lot of discussions and communication and really using the civilian part of the communities, particularly the leadership, Mm. to now take more the responsibility to inform people, to move people, to get people to safety, um, to negotiate with the other civilian structures and and also to bring issues like, I remember we used to talk with the... um, MILS in Mindanao, how do you actually make sure that these communities in these places, because you also have the civilian responsibility now, how do they access food? In terms of flooding, how do you make sure that, because they're already cornered somewhere, running away from the conflict, how do you make sure that they are able to 
access all these other services, schools, mm. hospitals, and so on. So in that case, it works. Yeah. And, and you can see that the community leadership will uh, approach the civilian structures and, and work with them. But that I also saw that it works more in situations where there's some sort of peace. The, the, the war is, has not ended, yeah. but there's no yeah, fresh yeah. eruptions. Yes. But where there's active uh, conflict, I've always seen, at least in my experience, that the communities really fend for themselves yeah. in many cases. Because, and then as you said, Women take the lead, and I'd love to talk about what I've seen them do. But I also feel young people, both boys and girls, and I, I feel that, I mean, my experience, maybe I have not had as wide experience working with young people in an armed civilian protection. Mm. For me, I feel that they are a huge resource. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Just waiting to be, I mean, in some areas it's already happening, but I think next to the women, it's the young people. Have you got some good stories or examples? I have fantastic stories, many from South Sudan yeah. where I first interacted with them. And for me, I was so impressed with the work. I remember, maybe I even told you, that this is how now we started working with Nonviolent Peace Force. Oh, yeah. In, in, the, in the project that um, they were going to partner with UNICEF, there was an element of working with women. Now, we've always had these discussions. Now it's getting a lot better. Mm -hmm. we, we, UNICEF always says we work with we, children and yeah. women. But we struggle to see the work they do with women in the other programs. In health, it's very clear. Yeah. In nutrition, it's very clear. In education, it's a struggle. <laughs> because, you know, they deal with young yeah. children. Yeah, yeah. With WASH... It's getting a lot better getting women to participate in water committees and so on. So the gender elements coming out. Now, in protection, other than working with the parents, uh, we felt that there has to be ways of working with women in the community. So mm -hmm. when Nonviolent Peace Force came up with this suggestion and they told me how it works, and they started with the first uh, women uh, peacekeepers yeah. in a place called Yambio in South Sudan, I was very eager to see how it actually worked. Yeah. So they started the project and a few a few months later I went and, you know, I was, I, 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 we, we met with the women, at least two of the peace teams and um, we spent time talking with them. And because I speak some little bit of Arabic, it was very good to hear yeah. firsthand what they were saying. So they started describing to us about what they do as women peacekeepers. First of all, there are two levels. They said they have to deal with the fighting forces. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the SPLA that was always creating problems. So they would negotiate with them. But they also had on the other side the Lord's Resistance Army that was always coming to yeah. <laughs> abduct children. Yeah. And then they had violence within, so they were also dealing with violence reduction yeah. within homes. Yeah. So I asked them to give me examples of each. So they said, <laughs> what struck me, with the violence reduction within the community, they talked about domestic violence. Yes. 
Yeah. Then I said, but how, 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 how do you prevent it? How they said sometimes we just mitigate. We don't prevent. We mitigate. I said, but how do you do yeah. it? They said, okay, once we, they are all living in this community, but then they realized that the man in this house is always mm -hmm. beating the wife and, and oh, she comes when she, they see her, she has, you know, marks on her faces and things like that. So, but how do you do? I mean, how do you yeah. physically stop? They said, no, we don't physically stop. We visit the homestead. We do our own yeah. <laughs> surveillance and we know he's there. And we already know there's a pattern. Maybe this is the time he beats her. Yeah. So we go there three or four and then we visit. Yeah. And and we sit there. Of course, as long as we are there, he's not going to do anything. That's right. <laughs> amazing. Yeah, yes, that is amazing. Because it's just, yeah, just, yeah. just that just knowledge that you being there yeah. makes a difference. Yes, because this guy and this is this was explained to me because a lot of the women were older women yeah at that time there were no young women so this this man would see these women as his mothers or aunties or grandma yeah. so how can he now that yeah you know he can't be rude to them because no. that means being rude he cannot start beating his wife no then i asked them they say we stay there for a long time I said, but if you leave, then said, yeah. yeah, sometimes we would leave and then you would start beating. Once we know that, we come. We come with our food come and we stay again. for three, four days. <laughs> and just they stay. don't need to feed us. That's, that's great. But isn't that a wonderful thing that it's that persistence? That sort of like yeah. we come and we stay. Yeah, we stay. And after, I mean, then he loses. I mean, even he was angry. The anger goes, yeah. so he has no reason to be tired. Yeah. Or alcohol, and, and he sobers up, yeah. Yes, and then we start having conversation with him to find out what the issues are we talk with. So that's how they were Amazing. managing to bring down. That's fantastic. <laughs> and without using anything else yeah. except their own presence. Yeah, and, that, and that's completely them knowing their local community. Like, it wouldn't yes. be possible for somebody else to, like, walk down a street and go, oh, yeah, there's danger in there. So Exactly. And then I said, what about SPLA? And they yeah. said, yeah, we also choose a few of us who would go and talk to the commander and tell the commander that we've lost so many cows. We've lost. You need us. We need you. How can we work together? You can't. The soldiers are always coming to harass us. Yeah. And they are coming to take her. We need, we have children. We are feeding the children. Yeah. So how? And then, and usually it's not the commanders who do it. It's their men. Yes. So they have to rein the men. And they don't send the young people. They go themselves. That's interesting, because isn't it? Because there's a danger in sending the young people. They may be captured to stay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, yeah, so the women have to go. Yeah. Yeah. And they sit there. I mean several times and then the commander says oh yeah i will rein them in but then can we agree can you people give us this we give you that and they say okay we have some grains maybe we can give you some grains because you need yeah. to eat but we also need to feed our children yeah so then they would get some sort of protection yeah. from their own property or food or, or cattle so i said and then i asked them with ellery said with ellery there's not much we can do except 
to use informants. Yes. Once we know they are coming, we just, just move away. Exactly. Yeah. And that is <laughs> the safe and that is the safest thing to do with people who um really don't care. Yeah. Um uh, that who who knows that they're being uh violent. Because we're both with the yeah. with the political and the domestic violence. In a sense the people yeah. committing the violence do care. Exactly. But with <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. But now I was so pleased to see I think it was in 2019 when we had this conference with Nonviolent Peace Force. It was actually in Nairobi. And I saw the the protection teams, the women protection teams. They had, I mean, it has become bigger. They are younger. They are so confident. I mean, they could talk with anyone. When I went to South Sudan again, it was a different setup. It had yeah. moved from just a, a few old women to more you know, vocal women, they, they, they seem to understand the kind of power they have, what, what they can do, uh, how far they can go, who they can talk with. I mean, it's just amazing to see them really? in action. Yeah, it really is. I think watch it and it's like, so I sometimes you look at the videos that people have put on YouTube of them and I just love looking and seeing what the women protection teams do because when we think about protection like there's those myths of the protection that the strong people are protecting the weak people or the yeah. protect the women and this is women who are dancing and singing and and sort of like sitting around talking together and that's what protection also looks like exactly the different facets of protection yeah. that that we need to understand and take into account. I mean, a lot of this is, of course, governed by the international norms, international standards, but how can we bring it to yeah. the level of the, of the communities, but also not to impose it, but use that to enhance the existing capacities uh, or the assets yeah. that they have? Absolutely. And I think one of the key things that I've really loved in talking to you is the number of times you've talked about the importance of understanding power. So like the power, no, noting that people themselves have some power uh, and agency, but also noting that sort of like international mechanisms or structures can also sometimes like take away power, even if yeah. that's not their meaning to. And I, would, I, I think I'd love it if we could start talking about power and protection and not just protection as doing something and it's like because i think that would that changes the way we think about what are the protective behaviors that people have and and how they use that power exactly i i really love that and uh, if we talk to a lot of protection i mean some people do understand this that yeah. we also need to look at the power dynamics when 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 it comes to this but for me more importantly to understand how we rob people of the power. And for me, I feel that, for instance, when we do protection assessments or needs assessments, yeah. we always look for risks. Yeah. We identify the protection risks. More recently, the, I mean, at the very beginning, the way we were supposed to also look at protective risks, yeah. protective factors. Yeah. But some, it becomes looking at the risks, the risks, yeah. And we forget to kind of look at the protective factors. So looking at the protective factors is an important aspect of this yeah. work. Looking at capacities, what capacities exist 
within the civilians, within the communities, because they have capacities. My argument is that they've all not died completely. So there is something. What is that something that is holding them? Can we understand it? Can we work with it? Yeah. And then the assets, what are the assets they have? Absolutely. Because they always have that. Absolutely. Well, they've been doing the work before the international agencies got there. So Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll continue to do it after. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. This this really reminds me of the earlier conversations. You know, when we used to do a conflict analysis and you try to understand what the conflict is. And the early conflict analysis always only looked at the armed actors and they just forgot to look at all of the peace building and peace actors yes. that were going on. And I'm always arguing that in every place where there's violence, there are people working for peace and, and exactly. they need to be in a similar way. So that so we can almost learn a lot from the mistakes of the conflict analysis to try and sort of like <laughs> limit the mistakes of protection analysis. So Exactly. So by looking at what already exists yeah. and how that can now be the focus for the yeah. work that comes later. Yeah. Or the springboard or the foundation and not just put it aside or not even, perhaps sometimes not even put it aside, not to know. Yeah, and not even imagine that anyone could be there. It is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. That's fantastic. It's so lovely talking to you. You've got so many insights that I think are useful for um, imagining what protection could look or does look like, but we just maybe can't see it all yet. Um, so yeah. yeah, and there's there's so much more. I want to talk to you about the unarmed civilian protection workshops and nonviolence and, and all of this, but we'll leave that for another day. I, I've really loved talking to you, and I I've, I've written lots of things that I think we could sort of like explore further. But yeah, thank you very much, Fatuma, for your time. Thank you, thank you so much, Rachel. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us. Come back soon.